All right, we are in church, and I think one of the underlying commands if you ever go to church is thou shall not lie in church, right? So, so I'm going to ask you a question, and you need to be honest about it. How many of you at some point in your life have had an internal battle with God where you found yourself resisting the very God that you say you trust? Raise your hand if that's you. Okay, I said we're in church, you can't lie. So let's try it again, because I didn't see all hands go up. How many of you have found yourself at some point in your life resisting the very God that you say you trust? Raise your hand if that's been you. All right, thank you, good, we can move forward. We've all been there, right? We've all been in that circumstance or situation. Some of you might be in it right now. Maybe you know that God is calling you to forgive. But right now, man, you just can't forgive. Maybe God's calling some of you to get out of a relationship that you are in, but you're just kind of hooked into it. Some of you, you know God is saying, don't go there or don't do that, and yet you find yourself gravitating towards that place or that position. Some of you, God has told you, here's how I want you to steward the money I've given you, and you've spent in ways that you know God doesn't want you to spend, or, or you haven't given the way God wants you to be generous, and you know, you know, you know. And your heart and your conscience tells you what's right. Scripture tells us what's right. But we find ourselves resisting the very God that we say we trust. And now there's a word for this. And it's a word that people who aren't Christians love to throw in your face and my face. Anybody know what that word is? It starts with an H. Hypocrite or, or hypocrisy, right? It means we don't always walk our talk. And the reality is we should own that. We should be real about that with people because we understand that it's actually an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing struggle in our lives that sometimes the reality is our lives are at, God, are at odds with God from time to time. Now, the interesting thing is, is that in the weeks leading up to, to Easter, because that's where we're at today, we're in the weeks leading up to Easter, leading up to Jesus' arrest and Jesus' crucifixion, there's a few characters that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. These characters' lives intersected with Jesus' life, and each of them we're going to see had their own specific agenda. And their agenda put them at odds with God and with Jesus. And, and you and I, as we're going to go through this, and maybe you've looked at some of these stories before, and you, you read this or you've read it, and you find yourself thinking to yourself, how could they be so naive? How could they be so arrogant? How could they be so stubborn? And yet the truth is, there's a little bit of them in all of us. Because we find ourselves, as we look into these stories, we find ourselves resisting the very God we say we trust. Rather than choosing to build God's kingdom in our life, we will oftentimes build our own little kingdoms. Each of these characters that we're going to look at have stood in the presence of the Savior of the world and each refused to abandon their petty and ultimately meaningless agenda and pride and their quest for control. Rather than saying, I'll surrender to God and His will and His direction for my life. The interesting thing is this, and we're going to be coming back to this thought throughout the message. 
their stubbornness actually illustrates the futility of us resisting God. And we've been there. Our stubbornness ultimately will become an illustration of our futility in resisting God. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, you know, I know, it doesn't make any sense to resist the very God that we say we believe in and we trust in. And yet we do it all the time. We choose to follow our own little kingdom rather than pursue the kingdom of God in our lives. So today, we're going to talk about a man named Caiaphas. And we're going to go through a journey and look at his life, and then eventually we're going to tie this into our lives and, and, and kind of lay the, lay the setting for you. So uh, Caiaphas was a leader. He was the high priest at the time of Jesus. He was the most powerful and influential person in all of Israel, in Jerusalem specifically, and of course all of Israel. And he was the connecting point that Israel had with the, the, those who were in charge of the world at the time, which was the Romans. And he was the person who would communicate directly with the Romans through the governor you know, of, the, of Israel, um, Pontius Pilate. Caiaphas was part of a family that controlled the temple, they controlled politics, and they controlled the religion of Israel for about 40 years. His father-in-law was high priest. Five of his brother-in-laws were high priests. Basically, they were part of this dynasty. And so they had all the power. They had all the wealth. They had all the authority. And this wealth, it wasn't just a little bit of wealth. It was an incredible amount of wealth because there were big-time financial perks. If you were part and leading and overseeing the religious part of the life of the Jews in the first century, why? Why were there big-time financial perks? Well, back then, the Jews throughout the world, not just in Israel, the Jews throughout the world had to, if you were over 20 years old, you had to pay what was called the temple tax. You had to give a tax, you had to give a gift, so to speak, on top of all your normal gifts, you had to give a gift to the temple as an offering to God. You had to do that annually, every year. And you had to give a half a shekel. It was worth about a day and a half's wages. So on top of all the other giving that happened, you had this amount that came in. And so millions upon millions of dollars flowed into this 37-acre parcel called the Temple Mount, where the, where, the, where the Temple of Israel sat. In fact, so much money came in through the Temple from throughout the world that governors in regions throughout the Roman Empire, they would try to pass laws that would, that would basically get the Jews to not give, uh, you know, this temple tax back to Israel. Now, why would they do that? Because all this wealth was leading their city, was leaving their province, was leading, leaving their region and going to Israel. So they wanted to get rid of that. Caiaphas, he was essentially in charge of all this money. It gave him extraordinary power and influence and authority. In fact, Caiaphas was such a good politician that he maintained his job for 18 years. Back then, nobody kept that kind of position and that kind of job for that long. He had built quite a kingdom for himself. Life was good for Caiaphas until a carpenter stonemason turned rabbi, showed up on the scene in Israel. Jesus showed up, 
And when Jesus showed up, he was a problem for Caiaphas. And it wasn't just Jesus' teaching, even though that was an issue. The biggest issue were the crowds. The crowds. And everywhere Jesus went, hundreds, thousands of people gathered, right? In fact, you know some of the stories. In one of the stories, the Bible talks about how Jesus fed how many people? How many people did he feed? Anybody know? How many? He fed, the Bible says, actually, if you read it closely, he fed 5,000 what? Men, which means there's at least 10,000 or more people. It's a huge crowd. And the crowds were a threat to Caiaphas. The crowds were a threat to Rome. The, co- the crowds were a threat to the Jewish system that had been established because crowds meant a couple things. Crowds meant the potential for insurrection. Crowds meant division. Crowds meant the possibility for civil war. Crowds meant that things could turn quickly on Caiaphas and his other religious leaders, or they can even turn on the Roman garrison. And so the Romans, they were always concerned about crowds. And Caiaphas is concerned about crowds as well. And here's Jesus coming along, and he is gathering crowds and crowds of people. Caiaphas had another problem with Jesus, and that was that the Bible tells us Jesus, when he spoke, he spoke with authority. And he just amazed the people with his speaking. And his authority gave him a legitimacy that essentially trumped the authority and legitimacy of the religious leaders. Caiaphas and his religious leaders, they were losing ground with the people that they worked so hard to to rule over. Why? Because of Jesus. Their kingdom was threatened by Jesus. Now, another problem Caiaphas had and the religious leaders had is that Jesus was super critical of them. Jesus was super critical of all the religious leaders for various reasons. One of the reasons was was Jesus was disgusted by the the abuse that went on with the temple. And the house of prayer of God had turned into a a den of robbers and thieves. And and these leaders, you know, when you had to pay the temple tax, they figured out another way not just to get the half shekel from people. They figured out another way to extort money from people. And that was in the exchange of money. You ever gone to another country and have to exchange money? And, and, and if you don't go to the, you know, to the official pit places and you go to the back alley places, you know, the rates aren't as good. Well, back then, you had to pay with, you couldn't just take the money you had. If you were from Rome, you couldn't use the Roman money. You had to use a specific money that was only used for the temple. And so you would have to exchange whatever money you had for the specific temple coin. And so they took more money from the people. Jesus was disgusted by it all. And so he spoke against these religious leaders and these temple leaders, of which Caiaphas was the leader of all of them. In fact, Jesus said this, Matthew 23, verse 33. Here's what he said to these leaders. Okay? This, would, this would be like you know, God coming right now and speaking to you know, the, the religious elite in the church or the pastors, and he says this, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? In other words, Jesus is saying, because of all your corruption in my father's house, man, you're going to go to hell. That's what Jesus was saying to these guys. So it's no wonder Caiaphas had a little bit of a problem with Jesus. It's no wonder that Caiaphas had a problem with his authority, with the crowds, with everything he was saying, the criticism. He was a threat to their little kingdom that they were building. Now, 
if you read through the Gospels, you discover that the story that I'm kind of building right now, it just built and built and built. And the religious leaders got more angry and more frustrated with Jesus. And it built to the point where there was a final straw. And they had to do something. They had to make a final decision. And the final straw was that Jesus uh, and Caiaphas, they they had this final problem. And the final straw was Jesus went to a community. And it wasn't something he said. It was something he did. Jesus raised from the dead a famous person from the village of Bethany. Anybody know who he raised from the dead? Lazarus, right? Lazarus was dead and buried. And the Bible tells us he had been buried so long that he already smelled. He already had the smell of death. And Jesus raised him from the dead. And now people see Lazarus walking around and they know that Jesus is the one who did it. And as a result, the crowds grew and grew. And Caiaphas realized our strategy to discredit Jesus hasn't been working. Well, what had been their strategy? Their strategy was simply to try to get Jesus to get to stump Jesus. And so they would ask trick questions of Jesus to try to discredit Jesus with the people. They would ask him these trick questions, and, and, and then they'd try to get, you know, to, to stump Jesus. And then they were hoping by doing that that the crowds would realize, oh, Jesus, he's nothing special. He's not that big of a deal. And they had thought that by using this strategy, people will eventually dissipate, and Jesus won't have all these followers. But you read the Gospels, and what you discover is every time that they ask Jesus a trick question, Jesus gives like this mic drop answer, right? Boom! And he lays it out for them, and the people are all like, oh my goodness, that's so amazing! Way to go, Jesus! And uh, these authority figures, they ended up looking silly in the eyes of Jesus. So, Jesus and his crowds of people, they grew, and they grew, and they grew, and they were a threat to Caiaphas and his cronies. The crowds were a problem. You got the story? You got the background? Let's dive in and see what happens next, and then we'll see how it intersects with our life. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to be in John 12 and John 11. And I, I want you to track with me here. John chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 17. This is right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And John writes this. He says this, John 12, verse 17. He says, now the what? Now the? Now the crowd, there it is again. Now the crowd was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead. And the crowd, what did they do? Notice what they did. They continued to spread the word. So now you have a biggest, bigger and bigger and bigger crowd, and the religious leaders are just at a loss. Verse 19, John chapter 12. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. What's the this? The this is their strategy of trying to discredit Jesus by asking trick questions. It's getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Our plan isn't working. Our kingdom is being threatened. And then in the previous chapter, John 11, turn there now. In the previous chapter, John records another thing that happened right after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Look at verse 47. John 11, it says, The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was the governing body. It was a group of 70 members. It consisted of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along. They had different perspectives on government. One was big government, one was little government. You know, one was for the people and one was for the elite ruling class. And so they had their differences um, and, and, and they, they, were, they always had problems and they couldn't agree on anything. Caiaphas was a part of the elite ruling class of the Pharisees. But now they had a common enemy in Jesus. This ruling body, it would be like the Democrats and the Republicans and the Supreme Court all coming together and actually agreeing on something. Okay, so that's, that's what's happening here. They didn't agree on anything until now. Common enemy, common problem, Jesus threatening all of their little kingdoms. They viewed Jesus as a, tr- a threat, John chapter 11, verse 47. They said this, what are we accomplishing? In other words, the harder we try, the more we try to, to, to shrink the crowds, the bigger they, go, they grow. Our plan isn't working. Verse 47, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come. And notice, they will take away both our temple and our nation. In other words, if we don't do something, we're going to lose everything that we have built, everything that we have stood for. In fact, Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus said, he said this, I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. He was talking about Jesus. And yet for them, the temple was everything. The temple was, you know, how they were, you know, had their wealth and had their influence and had their power. And so what Jesus said, something here is greater than the temple, completely offensive to them. That was blasphemy to them. But listen, in their heart of hearts, they knew. Just like you and I, in our heart of hearts, we know. We know that to resist Jesus is really to resist God. And we've been there. And that's where this gets extremely relevant and extremely practical for all of us. See, there was something that was so important to them that the idea of embracing Jesus, the idea of following Jesus, who claimed to be the Savior of the world, if they embraced Jesus, it meant that they would have to give up something. They would have to give up something that was so important to them. They'd have to give up their power, their popularity, and their wealth. In other words, to embrace Jesus that they knew was God meant they would have to give up their own little kingdom because they did know. How did they know? Jesus had made it clear to them. It was clear what it took to follow God and go after God. Jesus talked about it. But they decided the cost was too much. They knew how they needed to respond, but they had decided the price was too high for them. See, that's where this story intersects with us. Because when you make a decision to follow Jesus, it will cost you something. When you decide to put Jesus, not just as something, someone you believe in, but when you decide to make him your Lord and Savior and put him front and center in your life, that will cost you something. Uh, let's be real about it for a moment. Uh, that intersects our lives in lots of ways. Let's just take a simple, easy one. Isn't this one of the reasons that people, maybe you've been there, resist church? Right? I mean, think about it. Because if, if, if you say, I'm going to go God's way, and I, that means I want to start or I need to start going to church. And I don't want to give up my Sundays. That's an important day. 
I don't want to give up my Sundays because if I start giving up my Sundays and I start going to church, then they're going to eventually want me to serve. They're going to eventually want my what? They're going to eventually want my money. And all of those things are important to, to me. And I don't want to do that. Listen, I get that. And I get some of us have been there. Maybe some of us are there now and we understand that deciding and choosing to follow Jesus, it will cost us something. My guess is that we have students who attend our church who aren't involved in our LP students ministry. My guess is we have some who aren't involved because down deep they know, man, if they start getting involved and start really pursuing Jesus, that's going to cost them something in their life, that the life they're trying to live as a teenager their own way. Or maybe some of you are in the dating world and you're thinking, okay, I, I just want to do what I want to do. Because if I put Jesus at the center of my life, I know it's going to cost me something. I know if I do that, I'm going to have to date Christians. And I know if I do that, I'm going to have to remain sexually pure. In our culture, putting Jesus at the center of our life will cost us something. Or maybe you're in the business world. And you're like, you know, my industry, it's cutthroat. And I know if I choose to actually follow Jesus, it's going to cost me something. If I put him center in my life and in my business, man, that means I'm going to have to live with integrity in my business. I'm going to have to be honest in my business. It means I can't let unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. I can't do my job successfully Jesus' way. And some of us, you've been there. Or maybe you're there today. For all of us, we know. We know what we need to do. But some of us have said the price is too high. But all of us, we feel that tension, don't we? Every single day, we have that tension. Will I follow God's kingdom and pursue it his way? Or will I pursue it my way? That's where Caiaphas and all the religious leaders are at. And they're wondering, what, so what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with this person? Everybody's following him, and if what he says is right, it means it's going to cost us something that's important to us. It's going to cost us, and we're going to have to make a commitment to his kingdom rather than our own kingdom. The struggle we have. Pick up the story. Look at John chapter 11, verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas. So here's our guy, okay? Now we're, now we're really into the Caiaphas story. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. So he's saying this to all the, these leaders. You guys know nothing at all. Great way to kick off his speech, right? You know nothing at all. You don't understand. Verse 50. You do not realize that it would be better for who? Better for you. He's talking to these religious leaders. It would be better for you powerful people, influential people, rich people. You got a good thing going for you people. It would be better for you. Um, you do not realize it would be better for you for one man to die. Forget all the trick questions. Forget trying to stump Jesus. Forget our strategies. I got a better idea. It would be better for all of you if one man die. And then he kind of has this revelation like he just realized what he said. He's talking to this group of guys. Hey, it'd be better for you that one guy die. And then he's like, uh, I mean, for the people. Notice he goes on, for the people. 
It's better that one person dies for all of you guys. I mean, not really for you guys. You know, we don't have anything at stake. We're not, you know, we're fine. It's better that Jesus die for the people than all should perish. Verse 51. He, referring to Caiaphas, did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together to make them one. Incredible passage. Who's writing this? Who's, who's writing this, this story? Anybody know? John's writing this, right? So John's writing this years later, in hindsight. He's been a part of all, a lot of it. We know a bunch of Pharisees eventually come to Jesus. So I imagine John's talking to some of these Pharisees who were in this meeting who had come to Jesus. And John, in hindsight, is writing this. And he probably had a smile on his face, just realizing how incredible God is and how incredible Jesus is. And he's looking back and he thinks, and he realizes, you know what? They plotted to kill Jesus. They thought they could put an end to the crazy Jesus movement. And little did they know, John puts this verse in there. He's basically saying, little did they know that as they attempted to resist God, they actually facilitated the will of God. In the attempt to resist God, they were facilitating the very will of God because Jesus' death, John already knows because the story already happened, that in Jesus' death, his influence was actually multiplied. And that's why I said at the beginning of the message that our life one day ultimately will reflect the futility of resisting God. Why? Because your life and my life don't exist for our own glory, for our own kingdom. Ultimately, our lives exist for the glory of God and for his kingdom. And ultimately, whether now or in the future, there will come a point where your life and my life will be a reflection of the truth and the glory of God. And the question you have to ask yourself, do you want to go there willingly or resistantly? Because eventually it will reflect the truth and glory of God somehow, some way course my encouragement to you would be to go there willingly so that you're a part of everything God's doing rather than resisting him so John writes down as a result of this conversation Caiaphas leads the way he's the leader of these religious leaders he's the leader has the most wealth most influence most power verse 53 from that day on they plotted to what take his life now Caiaphas has a little bit of a problem the problem is he can't get Rome because they can't execute people. The Jews can't. They can't get Rome to execute people because of Jewish law. The blasphemy thing, you know, Jesus being, you know, their God and all that kind of stuff and bigger than the temple, that didn't matter to the, to the, to the Romans. So they had to come up with another plan. So they came up with another plan, and another plan was they were going to go to Pilate and accuse Jesus of sedition, of treason, of insurrection. If they could convince Pilate that, hey, Jesus and his crowds, they're going to start a riot, and that riot ultimately is going to, you know, go against Rome, then Rome would have no choice but to step in and execute Jesus. So he thinks about it and goes, oh, wait a second. He's not just blaspheming our temple. Jesus claimed to be a king. Now we got something. So that's how they went to, to Pilate said, Jesus, he's claimed to be king. He's claimed to be in charge. We know the story, right? Sham trial. He's convicted. 
He's beat. He's crucified. He's buried in a tomb. And he's buried in a tomb. And for Caiaphas, the threat had been eliminated. Their position in the city, their little kingdom, their popularity and influence with the people was secure. For how long? Anybody know? How long was their position secure? Three days? Three days later, Caiaphas gets word. Hey, that guy Jesus that you buried, that you put in a tomb, that was dead, that guy Jesus who there was a Roman, guard, Roman guards guarding the tomb, that guy Jesus, word is spread that people have seen him alive. In fact, one report came in, the Bible says, that one report had 500 people, a small little crowd of people, had all seen Jesus at the same time. So it wasn't just little individuals, you know, going to the garden and seeing Jesus here or there, or two guys along the road to Emmaus. It was 500 of them all at once. And then a few weeks later, Jesus' closest to followers stood up. They were hiding in fear. They went out into the streets of Jerusalem. And then the Bible tells us daily, they're out preaching the message of Jesus, that Jesus is alive. It was a simple message. Their message was, hey, you guys crucified Jesus. God raised him from the dead. We've seen him alive. Now, you got to say you're sorry. You need to repent. And you need to re- believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And as a result, all of a sudden, these little crowds of people, Jesus had 120 or so disciples, had lots of crowds, 120 or so disciples. Very first sermon that was preached, 3,000 people joined the 120. The crowds were becoming part of of the close-knit crowd, and it was growing and growing, and they weren't rallying around the person of Jesus anymore and his miracles. They were rallying around the miracle of a resurrected Jesus. And Caiaphas came to realize Jesus did more in his dying than in his living, that they weren't able to eliminate as hard as they tried. They'd even beat the apostles as hard as they tried that Jesus' influence and his memory and his followers grew and grew and grew. Well, Caiaphas eventually loses control, loses authority, loses his wealth. We know 30, 40 years later, eventually even the temple is destroyed, just like Jesus predicted, because something greater had come. That was Jesus. And as we wrap up this morning, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does all this have to do with you and me? This has everything to do with you and me. Because there's a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us. There's a little bit of Caiaphas in all of us that says, preserve at all costs. Hold on to at all costs. Preserve the reputation I have built. Preserve that relationship that I know I probably shouldn't be in, but it means so much to me right now. I'll do anything for it. Because whatever it is that you and I place in the center of our life, Whatever that is, that's now in place of God in your life. What is it for you? Maybe it's a position. Maybe if you're in school, for some people, the thing that's front and center of your life is your GPA. And and you'll do whatever it takes. You'll cheat if you have to cheat. You will not allow that GPA to suffer. Or maybe you're a parent and you want your college student, your college age, you know, high school student to get into a university. 
and you will do whatever it takes. You'll even pay Rick Singer thousands of dollars to make it happen. There's something in all of us that says preserve, 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 protect, 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 maintain, hold on to, keep, because this is my little kingdom. And the problem is, whenever you place something in the center of your life, other than God and other than pursuing His kingdom, whatever you place there, you don't necessarily realize it at the time, but it's already diminishing in value and significance. Whatever that is, and you know that instinctively with your own life, because you can look back at your life, and you can look back at decisions you've made, things you've tried to hold on to, to protect, to keep, to maintain, and you know that some of that, that doesn't even, that isn't even a part of your life anymore right? You've had something that you pursued and you went after, and now five years, ten years, whatever, however many years later, you're like, man, I pursued my own little kingdom. That, that's not even relevant to me anymore. Whatever you and I pursue outside of the will of God and the kingdom of God, that is already diminishing in value and significance in our lives. Listen, I get it. I understand that that's where we go. But when we travel that route and when we travel that path, and when we resist God, when we resist His kingdom in our life, when we pursue our own little kingdom, the decisions we're making, we don't necessarily know it at the time, but those decisions are self-destructive. They're destroying us, and those decisions we're making are destroying those around us. Why? Because we wanted to hold on to our kingdom. And I know we resist because there is an element of fear that says, I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to trust God. That is called faith. Taking that step of faith. But here's what the story teaches us. Here's what, if you don't write anything down, I would encourage you to write this down and, and just put it on your phones, email yourself, do something. Put this, because this is where it all culminates. And the story of Caiaphas is our story, and it's so important. And the story is simply this, that while saying yes to God, it will cost you. Saying no to God will cost you more. Have you figured that out yet? If you haven't yet, you will eventually. I, I, we'll figure that out eventually. Saying yes to God will absolutely cost you. But Peter was like, man, Jesus, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of life. You're the Savior. They're the Creator. It'll cost you. Saying no is going to cost you a whole lot more. So I ask you, what have you put in place of Jesus in your life? What's in the place of Jesus in your life? Ultimately, it's going to disappoint. You may not think so now, but ultimately it will. And you can spend the time and the energy and the money and the relationship capital, and you can go after it and pursue it. You can do all that. Ultimately, it's going to cost you. What for you right now? You know, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and tugging on your heart. You know, man, that's in God's place. And it's time I come before God and I be real about it and I be honest about it. The lesson of the life of Caiaphas is you can build your own kingdom. It's going to cost you. Or you can build God's kingdom and you will gain life that is truly life. Are you willing to pursue God's kingdom?